The Spoken Word, half an hour of poetry and performance, your connection to Melbourne's grassroots poetry scene, the voice of those of us who have nothing but our voices. Good morning. You're listening to the 3CR Spoken Word Program. Uh, my name is Di Cousins and this morning we're talking to Dr Felix Nobis. Um, Felix is a playwright, academic and translator. Thank you for coming in, Felix. Thanks, Di. Um, so now you recently um, did a live performance of your own translation of Beowulf at the Malthouse Theatre. Um, tell me about the Beowulf poem. How old is it and where was it found and why is it significant? Oh, <laughs> it's significant for so many ways, for so many different people. I suppose it depends where your interests lie. So in relation to how old it is, what we do know is that the manuscript comes from the period roughly between 990 and 1010. So we can then sort of date this particular manuscript, and that's a, a marvellous thing. It's in the British Library, and um, I visit it. You know, I encourage anybody to go and see it. It's, it's a really extraordinary thing to see. And that's the only source we have for this poem. That's the only place that it exists, and somehow this manuscript survived the various trials and tribulations of the centuries and, and is still you know, with us now. The poem, however, um, probably comes from a period earlier than the manuscript and whether it survived as an oral tradition or whether it kind of was composed through a process called oral formulaic composition where it was sort of compiled from little fragments by a storyteller or indeed whether whether it was part of the literary tradition. We just simply don't know enough. We can have our own feelings and my feeling is that it kind of emerged orally in process from the 8th century until it was written down. But um, there's a lot of blanks and a lot of dark areas and a lot of question marks, and some scholars say the only thing we can be certain about is our own uncertainty. So um, so that's kind of where I stand as well, really. It's, um, one, it has this characteristic of, of being a, a sort of a window into this um, pre-Christian world, but then it has some Christian references. Um, and uh, so it's a little bit, you know, like, um, I mean, it has some qualities of the Lord of the Rings in a way, but it it seems to be more grounded in its time than, than, you know, Tolkien. Mm. The Christian elements are a real enigma within the poem because it's talking about a pre-Christian world. So even though we know it was composed in Anglo-Saxon and it was written in England, um, post-migration England, after the the Angles and the Saxons had arrived within uh, England, um, it talks of a time of these tribes when they were in Denmark and when they were in Sweden. So it's looking back on a pagan past. But probably at the point that it was written down or at some point, the, the, the issue of Christianity needs to be present in the poem. And that indeed you know, probably contributed significantly to its survival because the fact that it was written down during that period, a period when really only the, 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 the church had access to the scribes and to the vellum and to the, to the very costly process of transcribing, they probably wouldn't have been so interested in an entirely pagan poem. And so it was the elements of Christianity that probably helped its survival. Um, But whether those Christian elements were interpolated a little bit later by sort of monks who thought, well, let's sort of weave these Christian elements in to help its survival, or whether they 
are present in the poem in its kind of main body. That's that's a point of contention still, really, you know, where the Christianity lies in relation to the poem. Yes, it, it's in a sense its own palimpsest, isn't it? You know, in the way that a vellum was often reused to um, take new texts and bits of the old text lay underneath. It's, it's in itself, it's perhaps a palimpsest. I think that's a really interesting point because it, it's possible to read the poem too too closely as a kind of instruction manual for its performance because there are performances of poems within the poem and of course you know as a young undergraduate it or, or you know I my first thoughts were well of course this is a description of how the poem must have been presented in in mead halls and it must have been just like these descriptions but as you say in a way you can't really read it on that level because it's talking about a past of itself and the notion of palimpsest I think is a really interesting one because it's a it's a past which emerges through the, 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 the print of the present, which itself now, of course, is sort of in, in the distant past. And tell me about the world that it uh, remembers. It's a world, you mentioned mead halls, um, and there are lords and there are sort of bands of knights. Um, what, what sort of world was it? It was a world, um, it was a- absolutely right. It was a, um, a, a period maybe from a um, where tribes of people clustered together and being part of a tribe is probably the most important thing for anyone it's the the entire sense of identity for people and and belonging has to do with service to their king service to their tribe it's a world of it's a very harsh world it's a world of of quite brutal battles where where life um, you know, a, a lot of people lose their life over the course of the poem, whether to the sword or whether to, to the bloodshed of, of, of monsters. It's a world of darkness and unknown where monsters exist beyond the kind of known world in the darkness of the hills and under the water where there, there's a certain unknown of monsters and an unknown of dragons and a, and a, and a, and a, a desperation of how to face the the bleakness and the darkness and the the danger of encroaching encroaching night in the form of these monsters as well probably the closest we know about the actual world was um the Roman historian Tacitus, he roamed through these tribes when they were in the north of Germany in in um um, sort of where the Angles and the Saxons came from, and he wrote of quite a brutal tribes of people whose justice system was 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 very brutal indeed and and um you know who would who would um punish people by death for disobeying their lord and so we we, we don't really know much about it we can't place it you know particularly well in relation to any historical period but we get little glimpses here and there and um, what's the, the basic story, the basic plot of, of Beowulf? So the, the basic plot is it begins with a funeral, and it begins with the funeral of Shul Chufing, who is the founder of, um, of the Danish tribe. And um, he arrives, he's washed up, really. He arrives as a, as a child. He's found. He's a foundling. And he, he is the king. He becomes the king of the Danes. And then we hear about various generations as the Danes grow stronger and we arrive at Hrothgar. And Hrothgar is a great king with a great tribe and he decides to build a hall, a mead hall, which gets the name Herot, which means stag. And he's very happy with this hall and with this achievement and so is his tribe until 
the noise of the hall wakens a monster from the darkness, and that monster is Grendel. And Grendel starts coming on a nightly basis, snooping around, and he invades the hall, and the first night he makes off with 30 soldiers, and he returns again and again until Herod becomes a place of death and destruction and sadness. And we then move to the tribe of the Geats, and um, here in, in present-day Sweden, we are introduced to Beowulf. And Beowulf makes the trip over to Denmark to find out about Grendel, and he has hand-to-hand combat with Grendel and kills him by by ripping off his arm. And uh, Grendel returns to his home, and his mother, Grendel's mother, then comes to the hall to seek vengeance on her child, and there's another battle. Beowulf has to go underwater to fight Grendel's mother. And then after these two victories, a period of 50 years go by, Beowulf returns to Gettenland, and he indeed becomes king, and he rules for 50 years, and then a dragon visits his people, and he goes to his final battle facing the dragon. And that's really the over kind of overarching story. It's, it's a fabulous story. It's not surprising it survived, you know, because of its epic qualities. Yeah, yeah. I think people are drawn to those elements, but people are drawn to all sorts of elements within the poem. They're drawn to the language. They're drawn to the little snapshot that it gives of customs, of the loyalty, of pride. And, you know, it really gives us an insight into what is important in this world from which the poem emerges. Great. Well, let's hear some of the poem. What would you like to read? And this is your own translation, isn't it? This is my translation. I encountered the poem as an undergraduate student in Ireland at University College Cork um, as a mature age student, and um, I was compelled to start a translation, maybe maybe foolishly. It took me three years to write a, a translation of the poem, and um, but it's uh, it's a piece of work that I'm very proud of and that now, you know, 20 years later, I, I revisit from time to time and it stood me in incredibly good stead. And I thought we'd start maybe with the, the very f- opening of the poem, um, which describes the, 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 the funeral of Shu, Shu Fing. Um, the poem begins with an Anglo-Saxon word, what, which um, means when it's translated, it's often translated as listen or low, um, suggesting the oral nature of the poem. Now, this is something that, that's challenged, and it doesn't necessarily mean, mean that it was oral, an oral poem initially. But the notion that the first line is, what we, Garduna, listen, we have heard of the Spear Danes. There's a notion there of embracing and opening and speaking to a group of people, and there's something very nice about that. So I've left the beginning of it untranslated just to get a bit of a sound of the Anglo-Saxon language. And then I'll Tell the story of um, Shul's arrival and funeral. What? We gar duna in yer de gum. The odd kuninger thrum ye frunen. Who the ethelingus ellen fremeden. Oft Shuld scheffing shook foundations. Shattered tables, benches of mead halls of many enemy tribes where they drunk in fear. But when first found, he had been forsaken. When they found him as a boy, he had been forsaken. And for this, he'd been granted greater glory. He thrived beneath the heavens, his honour forthrust, until every which way each neighbouring tribe over the whale rode sea. 
would obey him and would pay him their rich respects. That was good cooning. When his time came, Shu took himself off on that great journey in God's care. There at harbour stood Ringyastufna, icy and eager, the prince's ring proud ship, and down they laid their beloved leader, their giver of rings, into its grip, the master by the mast. A multitude of precious things from distant places gathered, swords and sashes they set upon his chest, a torrent of such treasures as ought to travel with him across the ocean's temper and alone upon his quest. And still they flew a flag of gold high overhead that the ocean might bear him. And with a sadness of the spirit, and with a mourning of the mind, they gave him to the sea. No man can say, not those who argue in the halls, nor those who battle beneath heaven, who upon the other side, was there to receive such a tribute. Uh, beautifully read, Felix. Um, so that, uh, just very briefly, what, what, what's being described there? It, the poem begins and it ends with a funeral. So what we hear and, and see, the vision, the image that we get at the outset, is the funeral of Shu Chufing who, when his time comes, he takes himself off on the great journey. And his tribe um, lay him down in a, in a, in a, in a boat in Hringyastufna, a, a, a boat which appears to be harboured, and his body is laid upon it, and treasures are placed upon his chest, and he is pushed out to the sea in a remarkable kind of image. And we, we don't know a great deal about the funeral rites of the Angle, Angles and Saxons, but um, there was a, a discovery, um, a famous discovery in the 1930s called Sutton Hoo, where a boat was uncovered under a mound, and within it there was precisely what is described here, really, treasures from all around, really, from far-reaching tribes who had paid tribute to this king, and swords and a helmet and, and shields and armbands and jewellery are all buried with the king. So this seems like a really important part of the funeral rites for Shud. Great. So um, where will we go to next? Well, we found out that Hrothgar has built the great hall Herot, and we found out that Grendel has come on a nightly basis invading the hall. And then the poem skips, and it jumps across to um, Gettenland, where we're introduced to Beowulf for the first time, who decides to sail over to uh, do battle with Grendel. Meanwhile... A thane amongst the clan of Hugelik heard of Grendel's outrages. No greater man amongst the Giats or amongst mankind upon that day within this life in strength and in nobility. A sturdy vessel of the sea at once did he commission, swearing that he would sail the wild swan's way and seek this famous battle king of men bereft and needy. And of the greatest champions of the Geatish people, he took choice of the fourteen bravest to be found, and fifteen men approached the ocean's timber, shore-footed, one leading sea crafted to the land's frontier with a boat, balanced upon waves. Sea cliffs shadowed ship and soldiers climbed aboard and crept down winding streams. Safe within her breast, the men had borne beautiful battle gear, polished and precious, and pushed out to ocean men on a mission in masterly vessel. 
Over water they glided, guided by the wind like a foamy crested seabird. And on the second day, just as they were due to, noble, proud and nimble-crafted seafarers saw land. Saw cliffs a-sparkle steep and craggy hills and headlands high, and there was horizon traversed, and there was ocean's end. And there in haste the daring geats disembarked, rope-tied boat-craft, a rattle of their battle-coats of metal, and gave thanks to God for safe and easy sea-path. All of which a watchman of the shoes keeping lookout from a coastal sea cliff saw, as the shields glistened down gangways as the weapons of war were carried, and wild with curiosity and full of wonder as to what these men might be. Hrothgar's watchman, upon horseback, rode to shore, and shaking mighty spearwood in his Danish hand, demanded, Who are you? So that's the arrival of Beowulf. Um, would you just like to explain for the novice what uh, what was happening exactly? A large part of the poem, or at least the early part of the poem, has to do with ocean crossings. We're talking about uh, we're talking about um, Sweden and Denmark and countries where there's there's sort of a lot of ocean travel. Indeed, Beowulf swims a great deal as well. He's a champion swimmer. Um, and so this is the, the, the first of these water crossings, although, as we've heard, Schuld has arrived by water. He appears out of nowhere. He goes back to water. And now Beowulf and his men, he takes 14 of his bravest men, and they make the journey across to, um, to uh, Denmark to, uh, to do battle with Beowulf. And uh, he's met by the um, by the watchman, and the watchman asks who he is. And in the poem, Beowulf gives a wonderful, nuanced response, stating his genealogy, who his father was, what tribe he is from, why he has arrived, what favours are owed, how he respects King Hrothgar, and so on. And this passage in the um, in the recent film. Um, of Beowulf, there's been a number of films, but uh, but in the most recent one, this this beautiful passage is summarised um, with the words, oh, "I've come to kill your monster." <laughs> pretty much, sort of, the rest of the speech is wiped out. But um, but it's it, it's a lovely passage of Beowulf's arrival. It's beautiful, yeah. Okay, um, uh, we might just go to some music. Lift 
listening to the 3CR Spoken Word Program. Uh, my name is Di Cousins and today I'm talking to Felix Nobis about his translation of Beowulf and the poem Beowulf and its history. Um, so we just heard a little bit of a song, Shiver Me Timbers, from Tom Waits's album, The Heart of Saturday Night. And that's a favourite of yours, is it? Tom Waits is a favourite of mine. He's a huge influence, uh, a literary influence. Um, I, th- I think he's such a, a, a wonderful writer of lyrics and, and of music as well, of course. And because this is a song about sea journeys and because we've just been talking about Beowulf's sea journey, I thought it might be appropriate. Yeah, no, very good choice. Lovely music. Um, so where are we going to next in the epic poem Beowulf? I think we're going straight to the guts of a die where I, I think it's time for a really decent battle so um so we might go to the arrival of Beowulf in the Mead Hall and out of interest Beowulf decides not to take a sword with him he doesn't arm himself for battle against Grendel not knowing that the only way to beat Grendel is through hand-to-hand combat but it is out of his nobility he says Beowulf uh, Grendel doesn't carry a weapon neither will I and that's the reason why he doesn't carry a, a weapon So now we have Beowulf sleeping in the hall, the hall that's been empty for a long time, sleeping with his men, sleeping with some of Hrothgar's men, and we hear the arrival of, of Grendel for his nightly invasion. Beneath the mist of sloping cliffs and off the moors approaching, Grendel comes bearing the bitter wrath of God. His wicked mind weaving, intent on ensnaring one of man's kind inside that high, hated hall. Under cloud creeping he comes, until gold house of mankind is clear to be seen, gleaming demoscene. Nor did that night mark the first that he had sought out Hrothgar's home, but never to encounter, not before or ever after, a man harder-hearted harboured within. And still he comes. The soldier of misfortune encroaching upon hall and the door burst open, though firmly bolted, it sprang from his touch. Transported with anger, he tore in the mouth of the hall, contorted across the tiles of the floor, variegated he trod, the fiend, enraged in spirit, in eye there flashed a light most like a flame of ugly sin. Within the sleeping hall he saw the troops of youth at rest together, sleeping clans of kinsmen, and his heart clapped with delight. For Savage the invader was savouring the notion of severing each life from every body afore daybreak and there with expectation of a gorging banquet crew. Hiding from the shadows, the kinsman of Hugelik watched how with his swift attack the predator proceeds. Not that he was wasting time nor thoughts within his wicked mind, but reached out at the first encountered soldier who was sleeping, with abandon slit him open and was chewing ripe young muscles and was drinking veins of blood. 
and as soon as that sordid snack was swallowed and its very death devoured from its feet to its fingers, he groped on forth and grabbed it where the ardent-hearted leader lay, who lent his hand toward the beast and fury bent he caught him as he clambered on one arm. And that's when he discovered that director of destruction, that never in the rigid middle regions of the earth had he encountered any man of a hand grip harder. And his heart began to sicken, and his spirit could not scamper from that place soon enough, and his mind did desert him and dove into darkness beneath the devil's blanket, and never in all of the days of his life had he met such a moment of horror. The one whose wickedness had wrought the heart of human suffering felt his very body husk begin to break away, held by hand by the kinsmen of Hugelik, shaking with hatred they shook until one of them let go his life. Laceration. That tormentor shoulder-tearing sinew sprang apart in broken bone and bursted muscle. And so was Beowulf glory granted. And so was Grendel, sick to death, sent to seek his house of sorrow, sloping fen and certain that his life had reached the last day of its run. And as a token, Beowulf hung a hand, an arm, a bloody shoulder. There indeed was altogether Grendel's severed grasp, suspended from the gaping wall. Well, that's an epic battle. <laughs> yes, yeah, so um, Grendel is actually killed by Beowulf after his arm is pulled from his shoulder. He's not killed immediately, but his arm is ripped from his shoulder, oh. and um, off he goes home to the, his house under the fen to visit his poor old mum with his arm ripped off. And th- th- there's a very sad passage that he limps home, and no one thinks of him, and as he leaves drops of blood, and he returns to the underwater cave. Uh, where he lives with his mother with his arm ripped off and there the the hands of hell did reach and claim his heathen soul. Mm. So it, it seems that he doesn't die on the premises. He makes his way home and dies, you know, back back home. And, and it's interesting to think that, um, you know, even though we see him as an ugly, evil monster, he, he still is capable of sadness and his mother is capable of seeing him as his, as her dying son. It seems inherent in the poem to me that there's an element, you know, maybe we read too much into it. John Gardner wrote a book in 1971 called Grendel, and it tells really the story of Beowulf from Grendel's point of view, and it opened a field of scholarship looking at the poem from Grendel's point of view and Grendel's um, mother's point of view. Indeed, a kind of post-colonial reading of Beowulf where that he was there first and his mother was first and, and, you know, the tribes arrived and began building their houses and really, you know, um, taking over his his domain. And that's quite an interesting reading of Beowulf, although what seems more likely is really that he's just a kind of horrid monster, descendant of Cain. That point is made very strongly, that he's on... He, right from the outset, he's from the wrong side of the tracks, that, that you know, from, from Cain, all the monsters grew, including the Orkneus, which is a term which, um, which Tolkien turned into the Orcs in mm. Lord of the Rings. Mm. Tolkien was a, a, a professor of Anglo-Saxon at Oxford University, and, and many references are present within, within his work. Um, but... but Grendel is a descendant of of the evil world, and um, I mean, there's a there's also references, I think, to that pagan point of view about you know Germanic trolls or 
elves or, you know, that there is this other world that's a pre-Christian world. The notion of Middle Earth that Tolkien celebrates is very present in the poem, that this is the Middle Earth, but there's also a higher Earth and a lower Earth as well. And we don't really know what happens in the lower Earth, but that seems to be when Beowulf does battle with Grendel's mother, he dives down, he's attacked by various sea monsters, and and uh, battle, uh, Be- Beowulf does various battles with sea monsters, but sort of going down beneath the surface to do battle with a, with a dark force is quite inherent in, in the poem. It's an amazing um, piece of literature and it's extraordinary that it survived. Okay, um, this is the first part of a two-part series on Beowulf and uh, we're going to have to finish here. Um, Well, thank you for coming in, Felix. Thanks very much, Di. And I look forward to continuing the conversation. I'll see you next week. Yes. Um, So this has been the 3CR Spoken Word Programme.